This is The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. I've owned books and books and been a bookseller for over 35 years. What you're about to hear are conversations about all things literary, with writers, readers, publishers, old friends, new friends, and anyone who might wander into our store with an interesting story to tell about their connection to books, reading, or writing. These will be informal, over-the-backyard-fence kind of conversations, the kind I and booksellers everywhere have each and every day. Welcome to The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan, and uh, it's a wonderful pleasure that we have today in that uh, a good friend uh, came in today, a bit of a surprise. I got a call last night that he was coming to town, and that's Johnny Temple. Uh, it's great to have you here, Johnny. It's great to be here in Miami. We're sitting in the bookshop, and uh, Johnny, who's a lover of coffee, is having his, uh, what is it, a latte? A cappuccino, a cappuccino with 2% milk. Cappuccino with 2% milk, and I'm having a uh, cortadito, or as some people call it, a macchiato. And uh, it's what I always like to have here at the cafe. But Johnny's been an, an old friend. Uh, I see Johnny... Um, every year, if not more than every year, more than once a year, uh, at the Miami Book Fair, because Johnny's been coming to the Miami Book Fair now for... I think this might this year might be our 16th straight year, my 16th and Akashic's 16th straight year, along with my colleague Johanna Ingalls, who has come every year as well. And starting last year, I started bringing my son, Aby Abraham, who was 10 last year, and killed it at the booth. He's an incredible hand seller, and he'll, he's coming back this oh, year. Oh, well, we're going to need to get him to do an internship here at the bookshop if, uh, if he wants some retail experience. Let's do it. But Johnny, Johnny, I've known um, because Johnny runs Akashic Books, or Akashic Books, which is one of the most, I think, singular independent publishing houses that we have today. The variety of people that Johnny publishes, including um, the, the authors that Johnny has developed or helped develop into having long-lasting careers and being part of our uh, consciousness um, as readers is quite significant. Um, and, and that's what we're going to talk about a little bit today. But what I want to do, Johnny also um, has a very, uh, you know, he's come to publishing after leading an extremely interesting and exciting and colorful life prior to publishing as well. And uh, that's where I'd like to start. You're listening to The Literary Life. We'll be right back. Give us a little sense of where you came from, how you got into books. Where did that all come from? I was born and raised in Washington, D.C., and though I've lived in Brooklyn since 1990, <clears throat> I will always consider myself a D.C. kid. Uh, and so uh, I, I loved growing up in D.C., and I went, I, I became... In high school, I started working at a reggae record label called Ross Records, which was based outside of Washington, D.C. I was their very first employee, and it was a little warehouse in, uh, Maryland, in Kensington, Maryland, right outside of the D.C. So border. So what year are we talking about now? This, about? I started working there in probably 1983 wow. when I was a, um, a, a junior in high school. And that was a very formative experience in my life. Um, and I became very interested in, I was already interested in reggae music. That's how I ended up getting the job. And I got heavily into reggae music and also was able to see how records were made and how records were sold and distributed. And then a couple of years later, I went to college. I went to Wesleyan University in Connecticut and while I was there, there it was one of the few universities at that time that had some classes on Caribbean literature. And it was interesting because I, I was very, I remember being very conscious of the fact, like, this is not necessarily why my parents are spending all this money to send me to Wesleyan University so that I can study 
you know, read books by Jamaican and Trinidadian authors. Like where, where, what career path will this ever become? Well, you showed them, right? (laughs) I mean, to my parents' credit, they were always, they, they always gave me the room to do what I wanted to do in my musical career and in my publishing career. My, my, my parents were always 85% supportive. So when you went to Wesleyan, had you been playing music in high school as well? I was a big music fan of not just reggae music, but also the the local punk scene in Washington D.C. Is that the straight edge movement as well? There was there was a, I was never a straight edger myself, but yeah, the a straight edge was born out of the D.C. punk world, um, and uh, specifically this band called Minor Threat. Uh, and hugely influential, and also musically, I would say there's no better American punk rock band ever than Minor Threat. That's obviously my own opinion, but a lot of people agree with would agree with me on that. And it was a very politicized, left-wing, progressive punk rock scene uh, where... Uh, in D.C. At in, the time. in D.C. And, and in other cities, but D.C. So were we talking now... Late 70s, early 80s? Yeah, the DC punk scene really got going in 80, 81. Uh-huh. And, um, and it's still active today. Uh, Discord Records, which right. is probably the foremost influence on me in terms Ian, of Ian, Ian, Ian Mackay and Jeff Nelson, who both played in the band Minor Threat, and Ian later played in the band Fugazi. Uh, <clears throat> their record label, Discord Records, was, if I can point to any one entity that inspired me as a book publisher, it's wow. this punk rock record label, Discord Records in Washington, D.C. How interesting is that? Now, what and, they still, and they still exist. And, which is, and you do too. And, 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 <laughs> and, and, the, and the band that I played in on Discord in the late 80s, Soulside, I still get royalty checks Do every really? six months oh, from them. Sometimes they're only twelve dollars. It's nothing, nothing to change my life, but uh, it is still meaningful so, to so me. So tell me what it was about Discord <laughs> that you were then able to uh, sort of internalize and um, transfer over to the ethos of Akasha. There was this sense that uh, that art should be connected to the world around us, like literally the ground on which we stand and the people, if it's a homeless person on this, you know, right outside the window, that art should be addressing the fact that this person doesn't have a home. And there was an entity called Positive Force, uh, a sort of volunteer collective that was tied to Discord and the punk scene and they would organize benefit concerts. So there was a strong tradition in DC of benefit concerts, but the activity went far beyond benefit concerts. There were punk percussion protests in front of the South African embassy. There was recruitment for people to volunteer at the local homeless shelter, the CCNV, Community for Creative Nonviolence Homeless Shelter, which was run by a visionary named Mitch Snyder. Uh, I, I, I I know about him. He was a homeless advocate, right? Big time. Big time. And he was, he he died not too long ago, I, right? Yeah, he took his own life, which yeah. was a major blow to me and many people yeah. and something I, I don't think I'll ever completely get over. But he he left an incredible legacy and inspired so many people. Uh, and so the DC punk scene was, it was a very broad-minded idea of what punk is and uh, punk wasn't just a funny haircut and right. leather jackets. Uh, punk was standing up for what you believe, being loud about not accepting injustice, not accepting something uh, that you see happening in front of you, um, and trying to be, you know, have, have some courage. And that was one thing that I think that the left ultimately came around to understand that punk had this whole social justice dimension to it. But in the 80s and even into the 90s, there was this sort of division on the left where there was like a cultural, there was, there it was like a blind, a cultural blind spot on the left. Well, I think, I think, yes, there was. But I think what also happens is that like any movement like punk and um, it becomes co-opted and it becomes commodified. And the one thing that I've always known 
about discord is that they have not been. Absolutely. And they won't allow themselves to Absolutely. be. Absolutely. And I know that mostly, you know, I'm, I'm older, but I know that mostly through our mutual friend Susie Horgan, whose photograph appears on the cover of the Minor Threat album. Yeah. Correct on their and first. She did, and she did her own photo book of Ian Mackay and Henry Rollins right. back when they were teenagers working at Hagen Dawes. Right, right, right. I know it's uh, the connections are really sort of uh, profound here. So, so you were you were a kid. You were into music, and you had a you had a really uh, developed sense of social justice. You were at college. You're reading about. You're reading Caribbean lit. And it must have been very unusual, even that there was a class on Caribbean lit, I yeah, imagine. Yeah, there was more than one. There was, I think there were two of them. Was there really? <laughs> and, and who were some of the... Do you remember who you were reading back then? Uh, yes, sure. Uh, Roger, Roger Mays, was, uh, uh, who wrote a, a great book called uh, Brother Man. Um, of course, uh, I'm drawing a blank now, House of Mr. Biswas. Oh, yeah, yeah, V.S. Night. Uh, V.S. Night Paul. Uh, and there was uh, uh, some of the some of the writers. Now there's a, obviously a fast forward to now. There's so many more Caribbean writers have been published, and some of the writers that I was reading have drifted into obscurity. Uh, but it's incredible now how much there would be if you were teaching a literature course on Caribbean literature. You'd have to get specific. Well, what aspect of? Exactly. Well, you, you wouldn't have to. There's, of course, plenty of room for an intro to Caribbean literature. Well, there is, but as you know, because you're here in town for a conference actually on Caribbean literature, That's right. that there are so many um, uh, differing notions and swirls uh, in the academic world about. Caribbean literature. Um, and now it's even become more than just Caribbean. Now it's Jamaican or Trinidadian, you know, or Haitian, right? It's Absolutely. sort of like now, you know, it, it's not viewed as a, as a, as a, as a block, you might say of, uh, yeah. And that's, I mean, I would say that that's one of my missions and, and, and I also pause a moment to clarify that while I publish a lot of Caribbean writers, I don't mean to suggest that that's Oh, no, I do. And, it's one of it's one of various. And areas I know that we of, dove in sort of in the middle of all of this. For those of you who are not familiar with Akashic, Johnny publishes all kinds of of writers, uh, um, not just Caribbean, but but it's an important part of our list, and it's to me it's it's absolutely integral, uh, and um, you know really in my own mind sort of defines what we do, even if it's only twenty percent right. of our list. And and so when you left when you left Wesleyan. You got more seriously involved in music at that point. I got more seriously involved in music, and uh, I started doing social work, and I was very interested in working with ju juvenile delinquents. So I did that in Washington, D.C. After college, I returned home to D.C. I got a job working at a um, residential house for very young, like 11 to 14 year olds who were caught up in the juvenile justice system. They were basically awaiting trial. And I sort of fell in love with that work. And then along with some friends, I moved up to New York City to play music and also just for a life change of pace. And I continued to do social work there and ended up on a somewhat- In New York City. In New York City. Yeah. And on a somewhat spur of the moment, I applied and got into the Columbia University School of Social Work, wow. and I got an MSW, which, which was an interesting experience. But unfortunately, when I, as I was right as I finished up my MSW, was when a band I was playing in started to get more popular. And that was that was Girls Against Boys. Right. I had played in this band Soulside, a Discord band in Washington D.C., and then Girls Against Boys. Around 1991, as I was finishing up my social work degree, we got a new record deal with Touch and Go Records, a Chicago-based punk record label. And I realized I, I can return to social work, but you can't, or you, we wouldn't be advised to try to return to rock and roll. <laughs> But unfortunately, social work ended up falling by the wayside right. because I had a robust rock and roll career that then led me to books. And you were about 24 when you started the rock and roll with with uh, that band? 
Uh, 23, 24. Yeah, maybe a little bit. Maybe 21, 22. 22. So you had a good run with the band, though. The band... Yes, the band was pretty much a full-time pursuit from 1991 till 2002. A lot of that time, I stopped having a day job because we were too busy, and we started to actually earn a little bit of money. And then in the mid-90s, we were in the right place in the right t- at the right time in the post nirvana boom when the big record companies started signing up all the bands sort of post-punk bands that like nirvana and we were we were just the timing was amazing because we every major record label wanted to sign our band and our music was never particularly commercial girls against boys anyone can go on youtube or wherever else listen to it it's not it does not sound like radio music but we got a very very good record deal which then that was in 95 we did the deal 95 96 and that that deal gave me the money to start what was at first a record label and then became a book publishing company. So I didn't realize that it was first a record label. Briefly a record label. Right. Uh, a record label is what I had always wanted to do. That was sort of my dream. Right. I had never thought of being a book publisher. But at, in the mid-90s, there were thousands of little record labels and and thousands uh, doing a really good job of it. So there actually was not a need for another record label. And as as soon as I started doing it, even though I had a very good platform because my band was, you know, in all the magazines that Rolling Stone spin MTV, you know, we were, we had a high, we had a, you know, pretty high profile, but even with that high profile, it was a congested world of music. So there was not a need for a record label. And then on a whim, I published a book, and I should say I started the company Akashic with my two good friends, also fellow musicians and writers, Bobby Sullivan and Mark Sullivan, and um, and we, I, we published a book on a whim. Mark Sullivan had an unpublished novel. That's not what we started with, but his unpublished novel put us in the frame of mind of of trying to publish a book, and we published. The first book, am I allowed to curse or should I bleep you myself? Curse. The, fir- the first book that we published was a novel called The Fuck Up by Arthur Nersessian. And without any knowledge of the book business beyond the fact that all of us were well read, we published this book. And immediately it was everything I had ever wanted out of a record label. And most importantly, there were not thousands of other little independent publishers. There was like right. four of them. And there was a need. Without any background in publishing, we were able to get our hands on incredible literature that was that was just sitting there collecting dust. And then, for me, there was never any looking back. My two partners, Bobby and Mark, dropped out early on because both of them had children early on. And in the early days of starting a book publishing company, it was a huge money suck. I was making a lot of money as a musician at the time, so and I didn't have any kids, so I had I had a you know, excess income for the first time or right. disposable income for the first time in my life. Several years later, then we did publish Mark Sullivan's debut novel. And in December of this year, we published Bobby Sullivan's first book. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. That's great. That must be very gratifying for all of you. You had it in your mind to do publishing us at some point. Or was it, I'm going to do the record label, and then publishing came after that? That's what happened. That's publishing, what happened. there was, there was hardly really a germ of an of idea. It. it was when talking with Mark Sullivan about you know his difficulty <clears throat> finding a publisher for his book, we were just sitting around, and I think so, maybe I said, why don't we try publishing a book? And I knew about this book, The Fuck Up, for one reason or another. I knew about that book, and I said, why don't we see if that author who had originally self-published it, why don't, and it, I thought it might be out of print, but it was very um, impulsive with no grand designs, and I was a full-time musician still. I was spending right. six months of the year on the road in the U.S. and Europe, and it was a hobby and nothing more than that. Did you have any mentors at the time in publishing who were sort of helping you guide, you know, distribution, yes. all of that sort yeah, of Yeah, uh, absolutely. The uh, the key mentors, one of them was 
Henry Rollins, himself, you know, a famous musician, but he had his own publishing company called 21361, which I think still may still exist these days, but only exists to publish his own writing. But they had a period of maybe five years where he was publishing Hubert Selby and a bunch of great writers. And so when we started publishing, also my partner, Mark Sullivan, was an old friend, very close friend of Henry's and Ian Mackay's. And so basically I just got in touch with Henry and he put me in touch with his staff people and they opened up their databases to us. Then two other key publishing entities that were mentors to me were uh, Soft Skull Press and Sander Hicks, the original owner of, of of Soft Skull. Sander Hicks was very supportive. And Gary Hustwit, who is now a filmmaker, but then was running a small uh, publishing company that started in San Diego called Incommunicado. And the spirit that these three companies all just sharing information freely, it led me to... In, I've always been free with sharing information with other independent publishers. And I've tried to give a helping hand wherever I can, because I could never have done it without these other companies. And there was no profit or motive other, other than cultural generosity on their part to help me out. And that's, I think, I think that's an, a really key component of independent publishing. You know, I think that's the same, the same sort of sensibility that informs independent book selling as well. You know, it, I, you know, we're we're all loosely competitors, but we're really not, and everybody shares with one another. And I think that's why independent booksellers have always felt an affinity for independent presses like yours. I remember as a young bookseller seeking out the independent presses and feeling so lucky to be able to carry them in my stores here in Miami, knowing that nobody else probably had them in any other store that was here. Well, I, and chains. I, I should say that along the way <clears throat> of becoming a book publisher and finding Akashic Books, finding our feet, we've had a, many more mentors to come. And I absolutely, you very early on were super supportive of what we were doing. I feel like I can't remember where we first met. It might have been at the Miami Book Fair, but I feel like from the very get-go, you were you in, intuited what we were about and were supportive. And and that, and I'm not just saying this to stroke your no, ego, I but the fact that, that the, the Miami Book Fair uh, has been super important to Akashic Books. Well, and you've been you know you've been an important part of the Book Fair, and you've you know I, you've been an important part of Books and Books as well. I. I remember when we opened that store in the Cayman Islands and I called on you and we did kind of a mini tour of some of your authors who were, you came and That's Marlon, right. Marlon James, James came and I think there were a couple of others in yep. fact, if I'm not mistaken. So, you know, we've been entwined that way in a really wonderful fashion. And Brooklyn and Miami well, share. And then, and then there's, uh, well, we're going to talk about the Brooklyn Book Festival, which just happened, I think two weeks ago yeah. or so. And, um, in a very short time, and I believe me, one thing I do know is how difficult it is to put together a book fair. <laughs> and in a very short time, the Brooklyn Book Festival has become an extremely important uh, book festival in this country and around the world. Um, but let's talk a little bit more about the Caribbean stuff, because a writer that I've always been interested in, I think I first met him when you brought him to the Cayman Islands with you, is Marlon James. Yep. And we were talking earlier about um, Marlon's career and uh, how, how synonymous that was, his early career, with Akashic. Talk a little bit about your connection with Marlon and how that all developed. Yeah, so Marlon... First, I will say that Marlon James is one of my very favorite living writers. Top five, probably top three, if not top two. <laughs> I, and so to be, have any sort of association with Marlon for me is thrilling. Uh, and But when I met Marlon, he, I met him, I w was uh, invited to do a publishing workshop in Kingston, Jamaica, by the people who ran the Calabash Literary Festival, which back then, 15 years ago or so, was a annual literary event in Jamaica, and now goes every two years. It was started by the uh, Jamaican writers Colin Channer 
and Kwame Dawes. Kwame was born in Ghana, but he's also a Jamaican writer because he grew up in Jamaica. And Justine Hensel, who is a jack of all trades and, um, and among other things, she's the daughter of Perry Hensel, who made the film The Harder They Come. I had developed a relationship with the Calabash Festival and got invited to teach this workshop. They, in addition to running the uh, their, their literary festival, they were also um, hosting writing workshops for aspiring young Caribbean writers um, in Kingston. And so I was fortunate enough to be invited to present a workshop. A couple of weeks earlier, an author who is now an Akashic author, but wasn't then, but was part of our extended family, Kaylee Jones, was invited to do a writing workshop. And while she was there, she met Marlon and Marlon was pretty much despondent. He had sent his book out to something like 70 agents and editors trying to find someone to take any interest in his writing and just couldn't find anyone interested in his work and had literally deleted his novel out of frustration. Kaylee met him in this workshop and thought there was something very special in the writing that she read. And she called me up and she said, I know you're going to be here in Kingston in a couple of weeks. You've got to meet this guy, Marlon James. And I said, yeah, sure, sure. And so a couple of weeks later, I'm in Kingston. Marlon comes up to me after my program. And what was amazing is that Marlon knew my band. And I'm convinced that there was only one person in Jamaica that knew my band. <laughs> and it was Marlon. And Marlon, because Marlon is probably the most culturally literate person I know. Completely. You can say, you can talk to Marlon about any TV <clears throat> show, any film, any book, any painter, and Marlon will be able to speak at length. No, on I know. Anyone you mention. And, and his Twitter, his Twitter life is really kind of amazing. <laughs> yeah. And he shows that in that in that aspect of yeah, it as well. Yeah, and he's 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 intimidating in that way, but he wasn't intimidating when I met in Jamaica. He was a very sort of depressed writer who's had just deleted his manuscript. And so when Kaylee and I became interested in his book, he was able to find some, I think, a friend of his who he had sent the manuscript oh, to. that he still was had. able to resuscitate oh, this novel terrific. that was this book, John Crow's Devil, right. which went right. on to become his debut novel, which Akashic published in 2005. Oh, I remember I it like it was yesterday. I yeah. remember when that came out. Yeah, and then, of course, I mean, it was absolutely brilliant. This was one of these books where I read it. I had goosebumps nearly the entire novel. And when I was done, I didn't need to discuss this book with anybody. I knew I wanted to publish it, which is amazing to me when you think of how many times he was rejected. And now Marlon is a Booker Prize winner, and, and I, I everyone just, knows to read Marlon I just, James. I, I just got the new galley of his new book. Yeah. It's unbelievable. I, oh, I, I haven't... I, you haven't I, seen I, it? I, I oh, haven't they, seen it. I'm, I'm, it's a, how would you describe it even? I know that I had lunch with him and he was trying to describe to me what it was. The new book? Yeah, but well, it's the, kind I mean, of like... The, 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 it's the, kind the of elevator like, pitch is the African Game of Thrones. The African Game of Thrones. But it's he's taken everything that he knows about about mythology, African mythology and African history, and he's put it into this incredible mythological kind of a story. Yeah. And I think it's in it's three books. It'll be three uh, books. That's right here. It's a trilogy. I yeah. have not read the new book yet, but I am going to the book launch event in a couple of weeks in New York. Yeah, no, good, good and, for Marlon. Yeah, so, I mean, the book was immediately well-received, um, and it was a finalist for the L.A. Times Book Prize. The New York Times loved the book. And um, and then Marlon's career was up and running. And after that, he moved to Riverhead. People say to me, you know, are you, do you feel betrayed? And like, not for one fucking second do I feel betrayed. I would, I would feel betrayed if Marlon had disrespected me in the process. But Marlon and I are tight. You know, we've, we've known each other a long time now. We've traveled a lot together and we've been through a lot together and our careers have grown side by side and and I, I in addition to being one of my very favorite living writers he's also just one close of my favorite friend. people and a close friend of mine he's a very nice person he's, he's a great a, guy he's a, just a really really great guy and and I think that speaks to what the role of an independent press can do right don't you think I mean yeah I mean I, I it, to the extent that it was, quote-unquote, risky 
to publish the book, whereas, you know, I put it in quotes because for me, there was no risk. I read the book. I loved it with my whole heart. And then I got to publish it. And people say, oh, you did a good thing. But, you know, selfish motives would have led me to do it. (laughs) I must speak with a little bit of perspective that it was unusual. I mean, the, the whole notion of Caribbean literature was not something that was being published by the um, by the larger publishing houses, by the established publishing houses. Uh, part, we can talk for hours about why that is. Part of it is that they may not have had editors who were attuned to that. Uh, it wasn't necessarily viewed uh, to, there, there, there didn't seem to be a market for that sort of thing necessarily. And so publishing houses that were risk adverse, you know, they, they, they didn't do it. And so that's where I've always felt that the independent publishers who take chances, who, who publish what they love, who have a, a larger mission, uh, is a wonderful thing. And so thank you for all uh, of that. Thank you. We're, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with Johnny Temple. And you're listening to The Literary Life. Johnny, um, the Brooklyn Book Festival, we mentioned it before. Tell me uh, the genesis of that. How did that begin and what it, what has been your role in it and where is it now? I have always loved book festivals. I think it's, I just think that they're an incredible force in society and they do something in the world of publishing that very, that if there were not book festivals, there would be a big gap in publishing because books can, it doesn't feel this way when I'm sitting here in books and books, but in New York city, book publishing can feel very elitist and removed. And I think a book festival is where a big public book festival is somewhere where anybody can walk in someone who doesn't, is not a book buyer and find something that's going to draw them in at the Miami Book Fair or the Brooklyn Book Festival or the Los Angeles Times Festival of Books. If you're a Jewish, Christian, atheist, Muslim, Hindu, old, young, baby, uh, what, whatever you are, tent. Who, big, who, big who, whoever you are, there's going to be something for there's going to be a lot for you at any of those festivals. And I think that's an incredible thing, because I think that the New York publishing industry, this is my little soapbox feeling, but really ignores huge swaths of the population. And I think that these book festivals are places where huge swaths of the population are not ignored. And I wish that the book business did a better job of appealing to everybody. Our motto at Akashic, and it's meant a little bit humorously, is reverse gentrification of the literary world. And I think that big public book festivals are the ultimate place, location of reverse gentrification in the literary world. And it's also no accident that you started it in Brooklyn, when Brooklyn wasn't the Brooklyn that we know today, right? Right. And and so at the time, there was a big, the big book festival in New York was New York is right. book country. But I felt that Brooklyn, I had moved to New York in 1990, and I started publishing in 97. And maybe around 2002 or 2003, I started thinking Brooklyn really needs a big book festival, especially because of the incredible literary legacy in Brooklyn. Walt Whitman, uh, you know, lived in Brooklyn and for many years, and he started the Brooklyn Daily Eagle, a newspaper which still exists. And he helped to establish public parks in Brooklyn, where he thought it was important public parks were an important place for ideas to be exchanged. If you fast forward to the 1930s, Richard Wright wrote some of Native Son. Richard Wright is mostly associated with Chicago. He really was a Chicago writer, but he did live in Brooklyn and he wrote some of Native Son while sitting in Fort Greene Park, a park that was helped uh, that Walt Whitman had 
advocated to help establish many years before. And then you fast forward to the early 2000s, and I was living in a neighborhood within three blocks of where I was living. You had Colson Whitehead, you had Jhumpa Lahiri, you had Jennifer Egan, Nelson George, and on and on, all these incredible writers all living in Brooklyn that were, in my mind, were part of this historical trajectory. Along with some other people in the community, I started this thing called the Richard Wright Project, which was meant to honor his, his legacy in Brooklyn. And then I started trying to think about trying to do something bigger. And so I was fishing around wondering, how does one start a book festival? And one day, right outside of my home, there's an annual celebration for a baker, a Jamaican baker named Cakeman Raven. He is this best, the best red velvet baker in New York City. He had started up in Harlem and he became a cultural icon in Harlem because his cake was so delicious. And then he moved to Brooklyn and lived and his shop was right around the corner from where I lived. Once a year, tons of people would come together to celebrate Cake Man Raven religious leaders, politicians, every, his cake was so good that, you, that if you were a politician or a religious leader, you, you had to get up on that stage and, and do your thing. And so I saw that the borough president at that time, Brooklyn, Brooklyn is, New York is a city with the five boroughs. There's one mayor of New York city, but each of the five boroughs has a, an elected borough president. So Marty Markowitz, this colorful um, borough president that we had uh, was getting up there to make sure everyone could see that Marty was, you know, Marty needed those votes. So he needed people to see that he was, he was celebrating there. Cake Man Raven along with everyone else. We had just published Brooklyn Noir, the, the, what became the first book in a big series of city-based anthologies that we published, right. including Miami Noir and many, many other books. Now there's a hundred books in that series. But at that time, Brooklyn Noir had just come out. And so I grabbed a copy of the book. I ran to the stage, waited for Marty to be done. And when he was done, I approached him. And he was standing there with a woman who turned out to be his main cultural advisor, a woman named Carolyn Greer. And I approached them and I said, I want to give you all this book. And they, they, both, they both looked at it and they said, well, this looks great. You know, 20 different stories, each story set in a different neighborhood of Brooklyn. It immediately appealed to them. So we started talking. And then I said, uh, I started talking about the idea of a festival and they basically said, huh, we've been thinking about a festival. So we set up, we set up a meeting to talk about a festival. And so it was me, Marty Markowitz, Carolyn Greer, and then Marty's other main cultural advisor, this woman, Liz Koch. And the four of us started planning and that was that was how the festival got off the ground. Then we established the Brooklyn Literary Council, which is a committee of 20 publishing professionals, literary agents, people who run literary magazines, uh, people from different aspects of the publishing world. And we f- basically formed a volunteer committee to help program it. And so the first Brooklyn Book Festival ended up being in 2006 in Borough Hall Plaza and then Borough Marty opened up Borough Hall uh, and he is no longer the Brooklyn Borough president and the festival is no longer being run out of Borough Hall but the new Borough president the current one Eric Adams is still completely supportive of the festival so there's still gorgeous rooms the the courtroom in Brooklyn Borough Hall which is used for episodes of Law and Order, oh, it's gorgeous. It's yeah. it's, a, it's a beautiful room, and and um, and so we still get to do we still get to do events, and the festival is is in the same place it always has been at Borough Hall Plaza, Melville House, the great independent publisher. They were based in Hoboken, and they credit the Brooklyn Book Festival as being a major draw for them to relocate from Hoboken to Brooklyn, and now. You can't walk down the street in certain areas of Brooklyn without bumping into a publicist or an editor. Or, or bookstores. Or, I mean, there have been a lot of bookstores that have we opened. We have a lot of new bookstores, yeah. new independent Absolutely. bookstores in Brooklyn. Um, Fantastic. Even, yeah. The Greenlight Bookstore. I, I live right down the street from Greenlight. I'm in there all the time. 
they they didn't ex- they started up about I don't know eight nine years ago. Yeah. Well, they the just, ener- the energy is remarkable. There yeah, as it's, well. it's it's a uh, yeah. So Brooklyn Book Festival we just had our thirteenth year. Marty Markowitz's top cultural advisors, Carolyn Greer and Liz Koch, they are now the co-producers of the festival. The festival is now an independent nonprofit, and the two of them are the machine that makes the festival go around. I am, the whole time, I've always been a volunteer. For me, this is community service. And, um, but uh, the real heavy, heavy lifting is done by Liz and Carolyn. But there's a whole team of us, the Literary Council volunteers, and we, we help a lot with the programming. So, so talk about your list this fall. What are you excited about, of the books you're publishing? Um, one of the books that I'm very excited about uh, this fall is uh, a book called Fame, The Hijacking of Reality by Justine Bateman, who is a film producer and director and is best known as uh, the actress uh, starring co-star opposite Michael J. Fox on the TV show Family Ties. And she's done a lot of other acting work. But these days, um, she is mostly producing and directing, and she has a brand new short film on Amazon Prime called Five Minutes that everybody should check out. So she wrote this book about cycles of fame because she has gone from being the star of the most popular TV show on television back when there were only five channels. So she was highly, highly recognizable to now someone who uh, she has made the mistakes of Google Googling herself and finding horrible things being written about her, uh, you know, sort of those, uh, you know, what, what are they doing now? Or what or do whatever they look, happened to, or, 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 or even worse, you know, commenting on saying, like? what do they look like? And, and just the has clickbait of the internet clickbait. And she, her next book is going to be about, um, uh, the media and women's faces as the, as they as they age. But Justine went back to she had never gotten a college degree a number of years ago. Well, about, about maybe six or seven years ago, she went back to school to UCLA and got her undergraduate oh, degree. Wow. And she wrote a thesis, a sort of sociological thesis on fame. And then she thought about trying to publish it, but it was sort of too academic. So she ripped the guts out and turned it from being a uh, academic treatise to being a more a more personal and emotional and biting analysis mm. of fame and how society treats fame and especially you know in this day and age where a lot has changed because of the internet um twitter uh, reality television. And so Justine has an incredible perspective on, on the famous and what it is like to be famous, but also how, how famous people can be turned to use her terminology into being not a person sort of being robbed of your humanity. It's too easy when discussing this book to make it sound like it's someone who's complaining that they used to be famous right. and they're not anymore. And that's not at all what what her book is about. Um, anyway, so that book is coming out very soon. She will be at the Miami Book Fair. She was just at the Brooklyn Book Festival. The book came out several days ago and is looking like it's probably going to be a nice hit for us. Beautiful. Um, which is, you know, it's not why we publish our books so that they'll be hits, but we, of course are trying to sell as many copies as we possibly can. And, and, um, and it's an honor to work with Justine. Uh, another book that we're publishing this fall, uh, is the first children's picture book by bestselling mystery writer, Laura Lippman. That's right. Who has written a picture book called Liza Jane and the dragon, which is illustrated by a fantastic illustrator from Washington, DC named Kate Samworth. And uh, it's a it's 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 a little a little fable that was inspired uh, after Trump's. It's not a Donald Trump book, but it was inspired after Trump won the election. She was trying to her young daughter, 
basically had been hearing about how bad this man was and, you know, no one expected him to win. Then he won. And so the young daughter was sort of saying, how, how could this have happened? And Laura was puzzling over how to explain it. And the, the, the book is not an explanation of that, but that, that was what sort of sparked her. And she just, without giving it much thought, sat down and wrote a children's book oh, and then was sitting there going, huh, I have a children's book. What the hell do I do with this? Maybe I'll call Johnny Temple. <laughs> so did you know Laura before I this? knew her. She had edited Baltimore Noir for oh, us. Okay. And, um, we've, we've known each other and, um, and been to writers conferences. Well, you've had, uh, I might say some pretty good luck with what's seen as sort of quasi kids, humor books and that sort of thing we almost managed to get out of this uh <laughs> conversation without talking about go the fuck to sleep which yes. many of you out there must have heard of by now and it was probably one of the biggest selling books you had i imagine oh it's by a very 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 large margin it's our best-selling title and that was another kind of offhanded yes uh way that it came to be and and that's it's a little bit reflective both of both of those books are a little bit reflective of how we find our books both of both the Laura Lippman's picture book and Go the Fuck to Sleep by Adam Mansback the way Akashic got those books is that in both cases the author wrote an odd book and thought who's an odd person who might publish this <laughs> odd book and then I get the email or the phone call Adam Mansback, we had been at a wedding. Um, T. Cooper, an Akashic author. Right. Uh, T. Cooper was getting married uh, to another writer, Allison Glock. And Adam Mansback and I were both at the wedding with our little kids. And I've never actually asked Adam this, but it, it was it was about you know five or six weeks later that he contacted me with this weird book, "Go the Fuck to Sleep." And I think, you know, I was at the right place at the right time, bouncing my baby with him bouncing his baby. Um, so that when he wrote this oddball fake children's book for parents, profanity laced, uh, I, I was, you know, probably the first person that he thought to call, you know, after he had contacted Ricardo Cortez, the illustrator and said, right. hey, man, can you do a couple sample illustrations? Ricardo did that. And then they sent it to me. And I got the email from Adam and I looked at it and I thought, this is hilarious. Um, and I can really, really relate to this book, but it's probably not right for us. At that time, we weren't doing very, very many books that were full color on the inside because they're expensive to produce. These days we do a lot of them, but at the time we were still a little scared of the production costs. So I thought, and I was about to say, hey man, this is right back and say, hey, this is really hilarious. Not for us, but thanks for showing me. This is great. But before I did that, I, I actually emailed it to my wife, to my friend Paul Holdengraber, who does, runs the programming at the New York Public Library, who had young kids at the same time. And just to, I sent it around to a few friends, and they all wrote back <laughs> immediately. My, my wife wrote back a, a two-word email. Just said, it just said, Do it. I'm, no, it said, I'm weeping. <laughs> and, 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 and Paul Holdengraber, who's an incredibly persuasive guy, was like, Johnny, you must publish this book. You must publish this right now. And so I went to my staff and I said, and, and I was the only one on staff who had a kid. And so I was, and I said to them, you know, I think we should probably do this. And maybe you guys should just trust me on this because when I show this to other parents, they react instantaneously. Right. And then we thought, well, where, where would a bookstore put a book called Go the Fuck to Sleep? You certainly wouldn't put it in the kids section. <laughs> right. First of all, it looks like a kid's book, but it's not a kid's book. No. And so I, 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 took, I printed out a color copy of the proposal. I went down to Greenlight Bookstore. I walked in and I went to Jessica, one of the co-owners, and I, and I showed it to her. And she started laughing and laughing. And I said, but where would you put this book? And she said, on the front counter. Exactly. <laughs> I think that's where we sold hundreds and hundreds of them. Yeah. That's great. And then, and, then, and then the book exploded, became a number one New York Times bestseller, and still sells like crazy. If you look at our list and you look at the authors, not just the books, but just look at the authors, you're looking at a stellar cast of characters. Always. And we, we will turn away books. If, if we read a book and say, hmm, this is a great book and fits our list perfectly, 
but why has this author done four books on four different publishing companies? We ask around and we find out because this author doesn't know how to treat people. They burn, they, they don't play well with others. They don't play well with others. And that's yeah. not, that's, that doesn't work with us because we are a sensitive, we're a small sensitive staff. And this was important, a important learning experience based on a very difficult experience early on with a falling out that I had with an author. Um, but coming to the realization that, uh, we need to work with people who play well with others. And, um, it's been the saving grace of the company, but the books that we publish, I mean, I have a, next to my desk at the office, I have a big shelf that has a copy of every book we've published. And when I'm feeling down in the dumps, I just look at those books. And my very favorite thing about publishing in 2018, 21 years after I started, is exactly the same as my favorite thing when I started in 97, which is the books. I just, we're going to be publishing a book in 2019 by a Jamaican writer named Curdella Forbes. You heard it, heard it here first. Do you have galleys yet? We don't have galleys yet, but we I will soon. This book me. is called A Tall History of Sugar. And this is, this writer will knock your socks off. Oh, I and wait. I, I read this book a couple of months ago and I mean, I get goosebumps now. Everyone here, I Mitchell can see, can see my I goosebumps, can see the goosebumps talking about the, this book. And it's the greatest feeling in the world when you read something that has not yet seen the light of day and know that you can be, a, that we and I can be a part of bringing it to the public. And that might sound egotistical, but no, 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 as no. The invis- the, uh, p- publishing is a sort of invisible endeavor. And I don't, I have no, pro- I like that. I'm a, I was a bass player lurking in the shadows. So I actually like, I don't, you know, I don't want to be on the cover of the book. I want my, to be uh, the logo on the bottom of the back cover, but to have the honor, whether it's Justine Bateman or Michael Imperioli or Marlon James or Cordella Forbes or Chris Abani, these are just incredible you can leave their work aside and just look at the humans. And well, there's something very, um, there's something very exciting in knowing that. But for you, all of these people would not have been exposed to this writer, and I think that's really an important thing. It's kind of, I always call it the kind of, the 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 the, the creative urge that is assuaged uh, when you're a producer, in a sense. That's what you do. You're producing things, and. Um, I just have to say that you talk about uh, the gentleness and the the creativity and the wonder of Akashic, and you do have some remarkable people working for you. But I know that it also comes from the top. And Johnny, you're a you're a remarkable person, and I can't thank you enough for being here today on the Literary Life. I really appreciate being invited. I hope you like what you heard and that you'll please share your review on Apple Podcasts. And also give me your feedback at Books and Books on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to my weekly conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and Revolver.com. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. Thanks for joining The Literary Life.